So we've picked back up our series, our verse-by-verse walk through the life of Christ. The series is entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Our goal at the very beginning of this series was to see Christ more fully and thereby worship Him more rightly. Our desire is for these historical events recorded in these Gospels to take us to a deeper knowledge of Christ and consequently stir up deeper affections for Christ. I can remember like it was yesterday, the moment we decided to do Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Yes, it was about four years ago when we began the series, and we, but we were in a period of Harbin's life, and some of you in here will remember this, where there was a lack of joy. We were just going through the motions, and there is a way to worship God that is emotionless. It's simply based upon knowledge, and anybody, even the demons, as we'll see here in the text today, can do that. And there is a way to worship God where your affections give a witness, a testimony that you really do believe what you say you believe and that your heart really has been changed. And so we were going through a period of, of dryness in our church and we said, you know what, we, the, the cure to that is to see Jesus more fully. And so that's when we began seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, as we come to this section of the Gospel of Mark, which is paralleled in Luke chapter 8 and in Matthew chapter 8, this is a segment where the glorious reality of the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ is put on full display. We can surely see and savor the grandeur of Christ in these texts, and they should stir us up to deeper, more passionate, more reverential worship. Jesus followed his parabolic teachings about the kingdom by demonstrating the power and the scope of his kingship in this passage, in this section of Scripture. So from Mark chapter 4, verse 36, to Mark chapter 5, verse 43, this is one segment, one, one narrative segment. In that section, we have four events recorded that highlight the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of the God-man, the Son of God, the King of kings. And in each one of these different events, the divine power... And lordship of Jesus is on display. The first demonstration of Jesus' power is the one that we looked at last week in Mark chapter 4, verses 36 through 40, where Jesus calmed the storm. He had finished teaching. Uh, He's tired. He commands his disciples to go to the other side of the sea. They obey. A massive mega storm comes. They freak out. They fail to remember and believe who it is that is with them in the boat. And so they wake Jesus up and even accuse him of not caring about them, not caring that they were going to die. So Jesus wakes up. He rebukes first the storm and then secondly his disciples for their cowardice and their puny faith. The whole event leaves them stunned and in awe of who Jesus really is. And so we see in that event that Jesus is displaying his lordship and power over nature. His lordship and power over nature. In today's text, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we'll see Jesus demonstrate his lordship and power over the demonic. And then next week, we'll look at two more events in the same sermon in, Mark, in the rest of Mark chapter 5 that display his lordship and power over, first of all, disease and then death. So his lordship and his power is on display in this segment of Mark chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, and all of chapter 5. His power and lordship over nature, his power and lordship over demons, his power and lordship over disease, and his power and lordship over death. I couldn't find something for nature that started with a D, because I really would like for all of those to start with D. That's just the pastor in me. I I really spent way too much time in the thesaurus this week trying to find that. 
But nature, demons, disease, and death, all of which Jesus is Lord over. So in today's text, we're going to examine Jesus' lordship and power uh, over the demonic. And we find the story in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Now, this is a fascinating and gripping story. And it, it happens immediately after the calming of the storm. The disciples witnessed that amazing event, that amazing calming of the storm. Probably they're still a little bit rattled. And they, they pull up on shore only to witness another astonishing event. So let's stand now as we read this fascinating story in Mark chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1. We stand because we want to honor this word, which is infallible and inerrant. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, been, who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. And the, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this passage of Scripture. And this is an amazing story that may be even hard for some in here to believe that something like this actually happened. But Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that believe in what your word says, that this is an actual historical event, and there's something you're showing us in this amazing passage of Scripture. So Lord, we come to you and we ask that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds, and now speak to us through your word. Give me a mouth to speak, Lord. ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It was June 27th, 
1988. My family had just gotten cable TV, and we decided to invite some people over for a major sporting event. There were a few of my friends there, as well as some of my missionary uncles. I don't remember any of the ladies, any of my missionary aunts being there, but certainly a lot of the guys were. We were sitting in the living room ready, ready for this major sporting event. The event was about to start, and I decided to go make some microwave popcorn. That, like cable, was a pretty new thing to me in 1988. Matter of fact, we, we bought a bunch of it in 1985 when we were home for furlough, and so I was eating three-year-old microwave popcorn. So I'm sure it was fine that chemically enhanced butter didn't go bad or anything there in the little bag. So we are, um, I'm getting ready to, to pop the popcorn. I, I turned my microwave, which had dials, <laughs> to four minutes and 30 seconds and hit start. It wasn't but maybe a minute into the popcorn uh, doing its thing when I heard a bunch of hollering and screaming coming from the other room. And to my dismay, I run in there and the sporting event was over. This major sporting event that we had all gathered to, to witness, it was, it was done. You see, what we had tuned in to see that day through my fuzzy cable television reception was the biggest heavyweight fight of the 1980s. Iron Mike Tyson versus Michael the Jinx Spinks. You may or may not remember that heavyweight title. Two undefeated heavyweight champions going at it to determine who would be the undisputed heavyweight champion. And if you know your sporting history, you know that it was no contest at all. It, you can't even really call it a fight. The fight had ended after 91 seconds. Just 10 punches overall were thrown in the entire fight. Two by Spinks, eight by Tyson, the last of which knocked Spinks out cold. To this date, it's the sixth shortest heavyweight title fight in history. It was no contest. So we ate the popcorn as we watched the slow motion replays. In today's text, we have a, a heavyweight battle, a heavyweight fight that also is no contest. It's not even really a fight. It's a cosmic battle between, in the red corner, Legion, one of Satan's best consortium of demons, and in the other corner, the undisputed king of the universe, Jesus Christ. And while this fight ends quicker than a Tyson knockout, and Legion landed no punches, but before we see the knockout punch in today's story, the first thing that this story teaches us is simply this. Spiritual warfare is real, and demons are very real. So my first point this morning is that the forces of evil are an apparent yet hidden reality. That may sound confusing. They're apparent, yet they're hidden. The forces of evil are very real. And we see a very real thing happening to a very real person in the story, but there's no evidence that the spirits themselves can be seen in today's story. They're apparent, yet they are hidden. They, their work can be clearly seen, but they themselves are invisible. I make this first point because a lot of people, even some Christians, deny the reality of spiritual forces of evil at work in our world. And in doing so, they sort of blow off stories like this. But even in today's spectacular story, the demons are, are, are heard and seen as their work even though they are invisible entities as they work to destroy this man who is made in the image of God. One of the things that helps us to see that, that events like the one recorded here in Mark chapter 5 are real and true and actual historical events is that the narrative itself, like last week's narrative, and really this is just the same narrative continuing, is clearly an eyewitness account. 
the details, the manner in which the story is told, leave us no doubt that the person who is relaying the story is actually one who saw these things take place. Probably Simon Peter dictating what he had seen here to John Mark, who wrote it down for us. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. It says, they came to the other side of the sea. Now remember, this is right on the heels of Jesus calming the storm. This is the other side of the sea that Jesus had told them to go to in last week's text. Jesus was hoping to get away from the crowds and get some rest. And so they come to this, what is called the country of the Gerasenes. Now, archaeologists have pretty much nailed down exactly where this was. They've located a spot on the eastern side of the, of the Sea of Galilee where there's a large cliff. And there's several caves that were once used as tombs. Verse 2 says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boot, a boat, boot, out of the boat, immediately there met out of the tombs a man, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, real quickly, some people get hung up on the fact that Matthew, in his account, his version of the story, has two demon-possessed men. If you go to Matthew chapter 8, you'll see there were two demon-possessed men. And that, that gets some people hung up and wondering whether or not we can really trust these accounts. But that's really not a problem at all. Just because there were two men doesn't mean that there wasn't one man. And there has to be at least one, right? So probably the one mentioned here and in Luke's version is either the leader or the man who is in the worst condition. But one gospel writer recorded two, and the other two gospel writers mentioned just the one, and it's not a problem. Let's, let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, I have a meeting with a fictional couple named Jack and Jill. And later I run into my fellow pastor, Deemer, who, who reminds me of something I needed to talk to Jack about. And I say to him, oh, yeah, yeah, hey, I did. I did that already. I met with Jack this week. Am I lying by not mentioning to Deemer that I also met with Jill? No. Jill's presence isn't a detail that I need to share. But then let's say I go home to my wife who wants to know what I did this morning, that morning. And I say, oh, I had a meeting with Jack and Jill. Am I lying? No. In that case, for whatever reason, I chose to paint a fuller picture of who all was there. So Matthew gives us a little bit more detail in his picture by mentioning two demon-possessed men, where Mark and Luke focus on this one specific man. Matter of fact, in verse 15, if you look down at verse 15, when the townspeople come out to see what had happened, the, the way Mark specifies who was healed uh, in regards to the demon-possessed man seems to indicate that there was more than one. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, and then there's this little parenthetical comment, the one who had the legion, that one, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. So there's no real problem there to see two mentioned in Matthew and one mentioned in both Mark and Luke. Now, let's think about, let's read about this man. Verse 3. He lived among the tombs. Is there any significance there, the fact that he lived among the tombs? Well, perhaps that's the only place he was allowed to live because of this demon possession that had a hold of him. Uh, or maybe that in his demonized state, he has some sort of fascination with death. You often hear about demon possession accompanying some sort of fascination with or an attempt to even communicate with the dead. We read on that no one could bind him anymore. Now, it's interesting that they say anymore, meaning that at some point they could bind him, but not now. So it seems that this man's condition has been worsening. It's been getting worse and worse as he has been uh, controlled by these demons. It says they couldn't bind him, not even with a chain. Verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. This man, through this demon, through this demon possession, had supernatural, superhuman strength. 
Sometimes you can read stories about police officers facing someone who may be high on a particular type of drug who, who has superhuman strength and they can't even subdue or bring down this guy. There was a story I'd read once where they actually had to use lethal force with a guy and shot him like eight or nine times before he, he actually collapsed because of the superhuman strength that he had as a result of the PCP, the drug that he was on at that time. And so what we see here is this man is, is acting in much way, the way drugs act and they, that the demon has taken over his whole being, body, mind, spirit, and he has superhuman strength. We read on in verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now we'll come back to this in a minute, but it's also worth noting that in Matthew's account, we are told this man was not only aggressive towards himself at the cutting of the, with the stones, but he was also aggressive to anyone who passed by. Now more liberal scholars today dismiss all demonic possession in Scripture as being nothing more than medical conditions that today we would call schizophrenia or some sort of maniac, uh, manic behavior. But the Bible is filled with descriptions of other medical and mental conditions that are not considered demon possession. It's very anachronistic of us to assume that because they didn't have all the medical advances that we have, that they couldn't identify demonic possession. There's no reason to doubt that this was actually demonic possession. Demonic possession was something real in their day, and it's something real in our day as well. I can personally only think of two situations where, in my life, where I think that perhaps I was interacting with someone who was demon-possessed. They were certainly under some sort of demonic influence. But whether or not a possession, an indwelling of a demon in them was happening, I do not know. But I do know of other pastors and friends who have certainly faced situations where there was demon possession going on. Demon possession is real. But I want to also say that it's rare. So we shouldn't go around seeing demons under every rock or casting demons of specific sins out. So we don't even go around saying, you know, be gone, demon of overeating. Be gone, demon of lust and demon of a snarky bad attitude. Okay, an overactive imagination that sees demons behind all sin actually makes light of true demonic possession. Because there is a real demonic presence and there is real demonic possession out there. So let me just summarize it this way. Demonic possession is real but rare. But having said that, we must acknowledge that demonic activity is real and regular. Demonic possession, real, rare. Demonic activity, real, regular. Why else would Paul say what he said in Ephesians 6, 12, the passage Demer read earlier? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a very real spiritual warfare, spiritual battle going on all the time against real spiritual forces of evil. And to ignore that or to be ignorant of that is dangerous and disobedient. We are called to fight spiritual battles. And that text in Ephesians chapter 6 helps us to see that we are to, to love people who are made in the image of God while fighting spiritual forces that hate the image of God. Now you may be wondering, well, Steve, are you saying that people are not guilty of sin, that it's the spiritual forces around them that cause them to sin? Let me say absolutely not. That is not at all what I'm saying. Let me say clearly that 
people who sin, sin because of what's in their own heart. James 1.14 teaches us that. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So temptation finds its roots right here in the human heart. Mankind is born in sin, totally depraved, with hearts that are deceitful above all things and desperately sick, continually inclined toward evil. But James 1.14, it doesn't sound like the spiritual forces of evil that we read of in Ephesians 6. So, so which is it? Sinful people or spiritual forces of evil? Well, it's both. How do these things work together? Well, first of all, as I mentioned, we're all born... In sin, we're born with a sinful nature. We're born into Satan's family, the serpent tribe. And thus we are totally depraved. And out of our hearts comes idolatrous desires, desires that we want to put anything and everything above God, even good things that we want to put above God. And then along along comes Satan and his forces of evil, and they put those very things that we desire before our lusting eyes, and they whisper smooth lies in our ears, lies that tell us that anything and everything, even good things, are better and more delightful than God. So our flesh, our self, conspires with Satan to bring forth sin, unbelief. Thus, we must see that there is a sense in which everyone, every person apart from Christ, though not demon-possessed, is sinfully and willfully under the dominion of Satan. Let me say that again. There is a sense in which everybody apart from Christ, those who are not believers, even though they're not demon-possessed, are under the dominion of Satan. It's exactly what we read in Ephesians 2, and I'll get to that passage in a second. But let's listen to what John Calvin said. He's talking about the state that man finds himself in apart from Christ. He says this, Though we are not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of Man delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. In the passage I was referring to here a second ago, Ephesians 2 Verse 1, I care more about what the Apostle Paul says than Calvin. It says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following, here it is, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's the satanic power. There's the spiritual forces of evil. But then we read on, verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's man's sinful desires, the flesh. You see how it works together? And so we are called to fight very real spiritual battles against very real forces of evil. And so we hate the works of the devil while we love the person and we're praying for the Holy Spirit to free the person from the bondage of Satan and from the bondage of self and thus ultimately from the bondage of sin. So it's not either or, it's both and. We see this twofold emphasis even in the Lord's Prayer. Okay, in the Lord's Prayer, we're told the last petition, and lead us not into temptation, that's us, but deliver us from evil. So we see that twofold aspect of spiritual warfare going on in the hearts of people and in the heavenly realms. That's the battle that's going on. And so we can rightly say that when a person is saved, 
that God has delivered them from the dominion of darkness, that's freedom from Satan's power, and transferred them into the kingdom of a beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's the freedom from the depraved heart. And that's straight from Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14. So demonic activity is real. Forces of evil are real. Spiritual warfare is always happening. It's apparent. We can see the damage that it's doing, but it's often hidden. The devil's works are always deadly, but not always extraordinary. Some of his most heinous work is done quietly, but all of this is done with outright hatred toward God. So that's my next point. The forces of evil are ardently hate God. The forces of evil ardently hate God. Verse 6, and when, Je- when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, I think it's okay to have some sanctified imagination as we fill in some of the gaps of the story. Imagine this dude sitting up on the cliff watching this massive storm out over the sea. And then immediately that storm stops. Gone. And one demon says to another, whoa. There's only one person who can do that. And so when Jesus comes to shore, immediately the demons lead this man to run and fall down before Jesus. Now, the phrase that he fell down before him is actually a term for bowing or prostrating oneself. It's as one would do in worship. But this demonic man is not worshiping Jesus. This collection of demons in him is only causing this man to bow because they are in the presence of their creator. And before the fight even begins, this demonic entity realizes that he's defeated. There are two ways to bow before a king. One, there's the bowing of people who love and honor the king. And that type of bowing towards Jesus would be worship. But number two... There's the bowing before a king of a defeated foe who prostrates himself in admission of defeat. And by force, in his heart, there is no love. There is only subdued hatred. That's the type of bowing we see here this demon-possessed man doing. These demons are not bowing out of adoration and love, but out of defeat. And the hatred comes out when the demons speak. Verse 7, crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now that could be translated, what have I and you in common? Or why do you interfere with me? It'd be like saying, get out of my way, leave me alone. This proves that the demon is not speaking with respect here. Would you feel respected if I came up to you and and shook your hand? And after shaking your hand, I said, "Um, you know, what have you to do with me? You, you wouldn't feel very respected. So this is hatred coming from this demon-possessed man. But he's all bark and no bite. For he is forced to acknowledge that the one standing before him is Jesus, son of the most high God. Now it was a common thought in the ancient world that a way to get mastery and control over another person's spirit was to speak their full name. So perhaps that's what he's trying to do here. But regardless, this demon knows exactly who he's dealing with. And that's why he's cowering in defeat. He puts up less resistance than Michael Spinks. Ding, ding, down for the count. One of the things that's very interesting in the Gospels is that the demons recognize and acknowledge who Jesus is before the disciples do. One time I was studying that and I counted eight times where the demons acknowledge Jesus' identity and divinity 
before Peter's famous confession of Christ that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Demons have remarkably good Christology and theology. James 2.9, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. True knowledge of God does not equal love of God. These demons knew Jesus and hated Jesus. This is why true worship, as I mentioned earlier, is not merely right knowledge about God and about Christ, but right knowledge accompanied by right affections. As my discipleship group saw this Saturday, chapter 3 of Desiring God, worship is a matter of the heart and the head. Lose either aspect of worship and you lose true worship. Beware of practicing demonic worship. Where all you do is come in here and repeat head knowledge about Jesus in song, in prayer, and have your head filled with more knowledge in the sermon, yet your heart has nothing to do with him. Beware of demonic worship. To reinforce the demon's hatred even further, the man goes on to say in verse 7, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Adjure isn't a word that we often use, but it simply means he's commanding or he's making him swear. So this cowering demonic entity has the temerity to command Jesus by God's name to not torment him. So coming back to our illustration, I command you, Iron Mike Tyson, in God's name, don't punch me. Matthew 8, 29 says the demons, has the demons saying this, have you come here to torment us before the time? Meaning that they know that there is an eschatological defeat, a full and final defeat at the end of the age when they will be tormented for all eternity in the lake of fire and they are shaking in their demonic boots wondering if Jesus is going to send them there prematurely. That's what they're scared of. These demons absolutely hate their fate and they hate their maker. They hate God. And they hate God's creation, especially the crown jewel of God's creation, man. And so the next thing is simply this. The forces of evil actively hate God's image bearers. The forces of evil actively hate God's image bearers. Demons have one goal for mankind, destruction. The forces of evil, even when it doesn't involve demonic possession, seek to devour men They hate God and they hate his image bearers. We see that in this story so clearly. Listen to what's happening to this poor man. Night and day, verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The forces of evil want this man destroyed because he is an image bearer. Now let me add a parenthetical comment here real quick. I believe wholeheartedly That the Bible teaches that Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Okay, If one is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, he cannot be indwelt by a demon. 2 Corinthians 6.15, what accord has Christ with Belial? But Christians can put themselves in situations where they are influenced by demonic activity. They can fail to heed Paul's command to take up the armor of God and thus find themselves in overwhelming spiritual warfare where they are losing battles to the forces of evil. I mention that to say simply this, even though Christians cannot be demonized, the forces of evil still hate Christians and they hate us 
even more because we are the ones in whom the image of God is being restored. That image they hate so badly is being restored in Christians. And so demons hate Christians. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Timothy 3, 7 teaches that Christians can fall into the snare of the devil. And we read in Revelation that Satan is making war on the saints and has great wrath because he knows his time is short. He knows that his day of torment, like that of Legion, is coming quickly. Satan and the forces of evil seek to destroy the image of God. They are trying to destroy this man. Socially, he is ostracized. He's living among the dead. And the fact that he's cutting himself with rocks just shows how much he hates the image of God. There's a myriad of ways that Satan works along with our flesh to destroy the image of God. People broken down by stress as they seek the idol of financial security. People beset by sickness as they feed the idol of comfort. Young women starving their bodies to go after the idol of perfection. Men mutilating their bodies to serve the idol of sexual autonomy. And so on, and so on, and so on. Satan is working alongside our flesh to destroy us, to destroy the image of God because he hates God. It's interesting that in Luke we're told that for a long time this man was walking around with no clothes. If you remember from Genesis, after the fall, nakedness means shame. The demons have left this man a shell of a man, wallowing in humiliation and degradation. And so we read in verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is a Roman military term referring to a unit of 6,000 troops. Now that does not mean that there were exactly that many demons in the man, but merely that there were many demons in this man. Now, instead of getting hung up on the exact numbers, I think the main point here, the main thing that the narrative wants us to see is that the demons have completely overtaken this man to the point that he has completely lost his identity. He, this man, has no name. Sin and Satan have taken away his identity. It's almost as if he is no longer an image bearer of God, but an image bearer of Satan. That's what's happened to this man. But thank goodness for this man's sake and for ours that the only pure and perfect image bearer has just come ashore. And though this poor demon-possessed man can't fight off legion, Jesus can and does. And that's my last point this morning. The forces of evil absolutely have no chance against Jesus. The forces of evil absolutely have no chance against Jesus. It says in verse 10, And they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Now remember, let me remind you, this was an area on the other side of the, of the Sea of Galilee that was Gentile. It was called the Decapolis. It was this collection of ten Greek cities. And so the presence of a herd of pigs isn't that surprising. So verse 12 says, And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So verse 10, they're begging. In verse 12, they're begging. There's a lot of begging going on here. In other words, these demons recognize their defeat. This is an unconditional surrender. So verse 13 reads, So he gave them permission. 
Don't miss this. Jesus has to give them permission. Now, as to why Jesus would give them permission to go inhabit pigs, we can only speculate. But I think the main focus here is on who is in control. Jesus. Jesus has power and lordship over demons. We learned when we studied the book of Job that Satan himself has to get permission from God to carry out his evil plans. So too demons are subject to the sovereignty of God. Verse 13. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. What we see here is simply the destructive nature of the forces of evil. Unable to destroy God, unable in this instance to destroy one of his image bearers, they settle for destroying another part of his creation. In this case, a herd of 2,000 pigs. And with that, the battle is over. Jesus brought peace to the disciples on the boat by commanding away the storm, and now he brings peace to this poor man by commanding away the demons. Lordship and power over nature, lordship and power over demons. And this is simply a preview of the full and final victory. Colossians 2.15 teaches us that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So let's finish the story. Let's conclude by finishing the story here. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. Okay, probably since there was a herd that big, the pigs probably belonged to the city. It wasn't just one person's pigs, okay? So the people came out to see what, what, what it was that had happened. They had to see it for themselves. I'm sure they heard this herdsman's story and said, okay, it's a little far-fetched. Let's go see what's going on. Verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened. First of all, listen, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and, secondly, to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Here's some more begging. But instead of rejoicing over what Jesus had done to this man, begging Jesus to stay and to teach them, They want nothing to do with him. Forgetting about the man who was mercifully delivered, these folks are far more freaked out and worried about what happened to their pigs. What else would this man do to mess up our lives if he stays here with us? He needs to leave. And so he does, verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. More begging. There's lots of begging going on here. He begs him this time to go with him. This man is begging to be counted among Jesus' disciples. But Jesus' purpose for this man's life was not for him to be among the disciples, at least not those who were following him day in and day out. Jesus' purpose for this man was for him to be a witness. Verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See and savor the gentle Mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who knew and knows how to love the sinner yet hate the sin. He who knew how to wrestle against flesh and blood, but uh, not to wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness. He who loves the image of God so much that his ultimate desire is to see the image of God restored in man. And we see that restoration in this man. We see 
restored cognition or, or right thinking. Look at verse 15. He was clothed. His shame's been covered up. He was clothed and he was in his right mind. So restored cognition, restored thinking. And then restored affections. Verse 18. He begged him that he might be with him. So right feeling. So restored cognition, restored affections, and finally restored actions, right living. Verse 20 teaches us that he obeyed. He did exactly what the Lord Jesus said. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So this morning, those in here who are believers, let us do spiritual warfare. I'm so thankful that when Alix got up and mentioned praying for, for Kevin and praying for the ministry in Boston, what he said was, this is spiritual warfare. We have to pray. Pray for Kevin. Pray for all the work they're, they're doing up there. We should be involved in spiritual warfare. Let us put on the armor of God and with prayer, let us fight. Let us fight for spiritual victories. But let us Battle in love. Love for those who are entangled in and entrapped by sin and by Satan. Praying that they'll be broken from that bondage through the cross of Christ. While all the while hating the evil. Hating the forces of evil that are at work. And one final word here for anyone in this room that might be an unbeliever this morning. Will you really try to go up against Jesus? Or are you going to submit yourself to him? Will you foolishly get in the ring with him like Legion did? It's no contest. Oh, friend, you do not stand a chance. When Jesus returns, just as Legion bowed before him, so will everyone. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, friend, will you turn from your sin and confess the name of Jesus today? You have two choices. First, you can bow in worshipful adoration of a king you love and desire, or two, you can bow in defeated submission to a king you oppose and hate. But either way, you will bow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that you'd help us to see that our Christian walk, our Christian journey, this, this um, sojourning that we are on isn't just about the accumulation of biblical knowledge and, and perhaps passing that on to our children and all that, and that's great. But we are also in the midst of a war. And we have been placed in this world according to your sovereign purposes for a time such as this to fight spiritual battles. We are to take up the full armor of God. So, Father, I pray that you help us to do that. Help us to meditate upon what that means, to put on all this armor, the belt of truth, the, the, the shoes fitted with the gospel of peace, the, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, your word. Father, what does that mean? Help us to get beyond just the Sunday school lesson where we drew these pieces of armor on a Roman soldier. And help us to, to put into practice spiritual warfare. And let us with prayer be interceding for one another. Let us be praying for the lost. Father, move upon our hearts to pray for those people in our minds right now that we're thinking about friends, family, who are lost, who are under the bondage of Satan. And though they may not be demon-possessed, they are shackled nonetheless. 
And Lord, I pray that you give us faithfulness with the gospel. Because ultimately it's the gospel spoken that we find in the word of God that breaks through the chains. So Lord, give us grace to do battle. To fight the fight. And let us know that you are a warrior as we sang about earlier. You are a great and mighty and awesome God. Jesus, you are Lord. You have power over nature, over demons, over disease, and even over death. That's our king. We can't lose with that king. So Jesus, help us to love you more. And in the process, love your image bearers more. And fight the spiritual war that we're called to fight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.